Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the 7 a.m. Novelist Passages of Summer Edition. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. Now, we all know that the early pages of a novel, story, memoir, essay are really difficult to get right. So this summer, we're discussing the choices that went into a range of authors' first pages in terms of scene, structure, language, etc., and how those choices might help you with your own first pages. Today, we hear from the wonderful and lovely Maya Shanbag Lang, who is going to share the first pages of her best-selling memoir, What We Carry. Good morning, Maya. Good morning, Michelle, and thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for being with us. Maya Shambang Lang is the author of What We Carry, named a New York Times Book Review Editor's Choice and a Best of 2020 by Amazon. She is also the author of The 16th of June, a modern reinterpretation of Ulysses that was long listed for the Center for Fiction First Novel Prize. So she does both fiction and nonfiction extremely well, which is really I don't know. Maybe that's unusual. Maybe not. But it's impressive. Um, she's also the newly elected president of the Authors Guild. She's a passionate teacher, editor, and author advocate. She enjoys working with established and as aspiring writers alike. And she's the daughter of South Asian immigrants and lives outside of New York City with her daughter. And she is also, which is amazing, a competitive class weightlifter. All right. <laughs> uh, Maya, you just knew a whole bunch of stuff. Um, <laughs> so, and it's incredible that you're spending time with us. Can you give us a short summary of the memoir so that we kind of know what we're getting into when we approach these first pages? Sure. Um, what we carry is a mother daughter story. It's about the period in time when I was caring for my mother and, got to know her as a person instead of just through the lens of knowing her as a parent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really important. Um, and I, so I think the book is also going to, I don't know about you, Maya, but there's a lot of us in the, over the pandemic years that we, we lost a lot of mothers. Um, and so I think this book is, is a, is a good book for people to go to and find solace there. Um, okay. Let's hear from your pages. Sure, I'm going to start with the prologue. Mayuri, I want to tell you a story, my mother told me. My daughter was nine days old. Overwhelmed by the new demands of motherhood, I had turned to my mom for support. I wanted her to listen in her sympathetic way, to take up my feelings, to murmur in agreement as she did. Always, after talking to my mom, I felt better. Once, she began, there was a woman in a river. She held a child in her arms, her son. Wait, I interrupted, puzzled. Is this an Indian story, a myth? I wondered if my mom was about to launch into a Hindu legend involving Lakshmi or some other goddess struggling in the Ganges. Just listen, my mom admonished. She cleared her throat. Once, she began again, there was a woman in a river. She held a child in her arms, her son. She needed to cross the river, but it was much deeper than expected. As the water reached her chest, she panicked. She saw that she had a choice. She could save herself or she could save her child. They would not both make it. What does she do? Listening, I felt restless. I didn't know what this riddle had to do with me or why my mom was telling it. Besides, I knew the answer without having to give it much thought. 
the woman would sacrifice herself for her child. It was how all stories of motherhood went, particularly Indian myths. I said so to my mother, expecting her to agree, but she surprised me. We do not know the outcome, she told me. We do not know what the woman in the river chooses. Until we are in the river, up to our shoulders, until we are in that position ourselves, we cannot know the answer. We tell ourselves we will sacrifice ourselves for our children, but the will to live is very strong. Her words astonished me. A woman choosing herself, the mere possibility felt audacious. We must not judge, my mom continued. That is the real lesson of the story. Whatever a woman decides, it is not easy. This wasn't how my mother usually spoke. She had sacrificed everything for her children, a fact she liked to allude to as often as possible. Hearing her acknowledge maternal selfishness was jarring. Strangely, though, it comforted me. Practical by nature, a scientist by trade, my mom usually simplified matters, boiling them down to their essence. Forthright, blunt, she was the person who had all the answers, who did not suffer from self-doubt. Yet here she was acknowledging nuance and the possibility that life might be more complicated than easy answers permit. I wasn't sure what to make of this new side of her. While part of me welcomed it, I was an exhausted new mother. I wanted her to cut to the chase, to tell me how to manage motherhood, to describe what she had done. I wanted her to be the one, to be who she had always been. When I most craved clarity, she had given me an enigma. I didn't understand what she was trying to give me the answers I sought. She just didn't know how. Her attempt was circuitous and clumsy. Instead of being blunt, she was being coy. In the years to come, I would often think of the woman in the river, up to her chest in rising waters, paralyzed by fear and indecision. Eventually, as I learned the truth about my mother's choices, I would see my family's story captured in the tale. I had been right to be restless when my mom first told me that story. I had known on some level that she was being evasive. What I hadn't realized was that through fiction, she was trying to come clean. The story was her way of owning up to what she had long hidden to help me see what had always been before my eyes. And Michelle, I know you'd asked for just a little bit of the first of the chapter. first, just so we can hear the transition. Yeah. Chapter one, I'm six months pregnant, living in a city that feels utterly alien to me, talking on the phone as I so often do with my mother. Talking to her makes me feel less isolated, more assured, though on this particular day, our conversation takes a strange turn. I'm thinking of taking an easier job, she says, now that I am old. Mom, I scoff, you're not old. Soon I will be 65. That's two years away. I must face reality. I can no longer be who I was. I go quiet, unsure if I'm supposed to argue with her or not. My mom has a history of abrupt decisions. 
10 years earlier when I was in college, she divorced my dad after nearly 30 years of marriage, a shock to our Indian family. She quit her job and moved from Long Island to the unknown suburbs of New Jersey. These decisions weren't bad ones. I'd wanted her to divorce my dad for some time, but they were startling for the way she did them all at once. Why New Jersey? I asked from my dorm room. It was all I could think to say. It will be good for work, she replied. She was right. She landed a dream position running clinical trials for pharmaceutical companies and was happier than I'd ever seen her. Wonderful. Thank you so much. You know, one reason that I'm really enjoying doing this this summer is that it's just such a joy to be able to sit and have someone read to you. So I hope everyone that's listening um, gets that sense as well. Um, okay. And we were talking beforehand about the use of a prologue and how many authors that we're talking to this summer that are actually using prologues. And Maya, you said you had a theory about prologues. What was it? I do have a theory about prologues, and I will say, you know, many writers think that prologues can be, you know, that maybe they're out of fashion or that maybe editors will frown on them. Are they really necessary? All of that. Mm -hmm. But I think they've become increasingly popular because these days attention spans are very different. And I think there was a time when we would allow the first 20, 30, 40 pages of a book to unfold, realizing like this is laying the groundwork for the story. And now I think we expect a hook very quickly. Yeah. Part of that, I think, is because of that feature where you can look inside of a book online before purchasing it. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I also think more broadly that because of the age we live in, attention spans are different. You know, we're used to scrolling, we're used to getting content in new ways. And so I think that puts a lot of pressure on the opening of a book to create investment in a story before you have much real estate or space to do so. Right. And, and I think the prologue is a quick and efficient way of doing that. And yeah, because prologues usually have a certain sort of intensity. Yours certainly does. They have oftentimes a different voice. They're usually in a different point of they oftentimes are in a different point of view, um, oftentimes in a different time period. Um, I do think as readers, we're always wondering, why am I watching? Or right. why am I reading this? Uh, what is important here? Why why are you asking for my intention right here? Um, and so that the prologue automatically offers that reason to us before we even get into the story. Yeah, um, I think there's kind of two ways to think of a prologue. One, I think is sort of like an amuse-bouche when you go to a restaurant where it's like, here's a little taste of what's to come. And here's something to entice you and to get you excited uh, so that you're not just like sitting for a long time. So it's something to whet your appetite. The other kind of metaphor, I think, is it's a postcard from the journey before your plane has taken off. Yeah. So we can't quite get to the place. There's a lot of stuff that needs to happen before I take you to the place. But I can show you a postcard so that you have a little more patience during liftoff and turbulence. 
Right. And the postcard's going to be the pristine or the, the hope for the trip, the hook for the trip. That's perfect. Okay. So were these always your first pages? Not at all. And I think today's episode is really for the writer out there who writes flying blind, mm -hmm. has no idea what they're doing. This is to make you feel better <laughs> um, because that's certainly how I operate. So originally the first several drafts of this story opened later in time and opened with me driving my mother home after a doctor's visit made clear that she could no longer live independently. Hmm. And so um, it's, you know, originally the book opened and it's written in present tense. The rest of the story is in present tense, um, unlike the prologue. And it's this unexpected thing of I'm driving my mother home to live with me without having prepared for it. Uh, I've just taken her to a doctor's appointment. I was expecting to take her back to her place. And instead, she's coming home to live with me for how long? I don't know. And I wrote most of the story while I was living it. Mm. So the story started there. The manuscript started there because that's where it started for me. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, I think I was trying to make sense of events. And for me, my life changed so abruptly, starting with that car ride. And I thought, okay, that's the kind of launching point that makes sense. And certainly that's where I needed to start it for the first draft. And for a while, through several drafts, it stayed that way. Mm -hmm. And, and so then, did you, yeah, go ahead. Did you come well, to decide on your own that you needed to start someone else or was it through um, a writing group feedback or agent or editor that you revisited it again and rethought it? It was my editor um, at Penguin Random House who said, you know, I think the reader needs to know more in order to really appreciate that moment of you being in charge of your mother, you taking control of the situation, they need to see her be this imperious commanding figure mm -hmm. who is not only a physician, but a geriatric psychiatrist. Like they need to have certain things in place to really appreciate how disconcerting and jarring that car ride was. Mm -hmm. So hence, the change in the opening and hence the prologue. Um, but you do it. So the prologue doesn't tell us a lot of those things about the mother, but it does tell us about the mother as a guide to the daughter and, and the mother telling stories um, to the daughter and actually having a different interpretation of the story uh, than we would expect, which is a wonderful turn and, and really keeps us um on our toes and paying attention to the text. So when did you find this particular scene or how did you come upon this particular scene? So, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's <clears throat> chapter one where we start, I'm in Seattle, I'm pregnant. And that's where we get to see kind of the relationship between me and my mother. So that's backstory. Mm -hmm. What I realized was that I wanted 
the memoir to have a feel almost of like a detective novel and to create a kind of riddle of who is this woman really? And she's been hiding things. And our narrator kind of knows that the mother has been hiding things, but can't quite see them. So I wanted that to be a puzzle. And I thought the best way to do that would be to take this story. You know, later in the book, we get the story of the woman in the river and we allude to it a few times. And because it's this connective tissue throughout the whole story, Mm -hmm. I thought, well, why not start there Mm -hmm. so that we can prep the reader for the fact that we're going to be returning to this motif. Wonderful. And I also love, so I want to tell you a story my mother told me because it so it involves us in that storytelling process. I mean, it really is we're just settling down into a tale there and invited into a tale there, even though this is memoir form. Um, And you also even uh, at the end of the prologue, you have this line. um, What I hadn't realized was that through fiction, she was trying to come clean the story was her way of owning up to what she had long hidden to help me see what had always been there, uh, been before my eyes. So again, that last line is a really kind of thematic um, interpretation and, and launch into what the book is going to be about, um, which is wonderfully done. But then this combination of, of tale and fiction and memoir, and you yourself have worked in both forms. Um, was that just an automatic, uh, simple decision for you that you could, you really wanted to work with storytelling and the, and the power of fiction in your memoir? Um, or yeah. Well, so it's interesting, right? I think in some ways in fiction, we write our way through in order to get at like truth with a capital T. And I think in memoir, we're often actually shifting through stories and shifting through fictions, you know, because what do we do in life? We're constantly narrating ourselves and we're constantly coming up with anecdotes and stories and ways of making sense of ourselves and kind of assembling ourselves into coherence. Anyway, so here's the part that I hope makes any writers out there feel much better. Through multiple first drafts of this book, I had no idea that I was going to have the woman in the river Uh, forget as a prologue, I didn't know I was going to have it in the story at all. And what happened because I was writing this book, flying blind, you know, writing it as I was living it. um, I kept thinking to myself, how am I going to end this? Mm -hmm. Like it's a memoir. So I don't know how it turns out. (laughs) I'm living it. And how do I kind of land this plane? And there was one day when I was, you know, caring for my mother, she and I go for a walk. And I don't know why, but somehow that story of the woman in the river popped into my head. And I said to her, mom, do you remember that story that you told me when Zoe was a newborn? And she looked at me and she said, oh my gosh, I can't believe you remember that. And she then told an entirely different version of the story. Mm. And I said, wait, that's not what you told me. This is very different. And I knew as she was telling it, it was this feeling of, oh, the way that this story has changed 
says everything about my relationship to her and how she is with me now in terms of how much she's letting me in as her caregiver versus the mythic facade she put up when we had a you know mother-daughter relationship where she was the authority figure and I was the child, she presented herself and her stories in a very different way. So I thought, oh, um, that's going to be in the book. And 15 minutes after that scene happened in real life, I ran up to my laptop and like wrote it down. And um, so that chapter that's towards the end of what we carry was written like right after it happened. And then I thought, okay, now I'm going to figure out a way to plant it throughout and make it look like this was the structure all along. Wonderful. Wonderful. Um, And so, and why do you use past tense for the prologue and present tense for the rest of the memoir? So present tense, my first book was also written in present tense. I'm partial to that form of narration because I think that's how we go through life, right? Mm -hmm. Like we're trying to figure out stuff and sort through stuff and make sense of stuff as we're living it. We don't have the luxury of hindsight. And we're, when we're at, I think our most vulnerable or in our most difficult moments, that I think is when we feel the present most acutely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So for me, it makes sense to write that way. The prologue, if we go back to that analogy we made about a prologue kind of being like a postcard from a trip that hasn't yet happened and it's giving you incentive to go on the trip, I think it makes sense uh, for the prologue to be in past tense because it's kind of like, you know, it's operating from a different point of time. It's saying, here's what I didn't get then. Here's what I didn't see then. Here's what I didn't understand. And that gives you the reason to read. And I think that voice is something that during storytelling, you don't want to do too much of, Mm. right? Like, I think it's important in storytelling to give the reader this feeling of we're in this together. I don't yet know what happens. Um, So you want to be selective about those kind of zooming out moments where you take a step back from the narrative because it's a little bit of a cheat. Uh, yes, yes, it can be. Um, though I oftentimes find that writers forget that they can do that, that that is actually a tool in the toolbox, that they can actually pull away a little bit and give us necessary context, interpretation if they wish, um, because that the narrator knows more than the character does who is acting out the story in real time. The narrator, even in present tense, the narrator is always ahead a little bit, organizing and managing the information that we're getting. Um, Otherwise, if we only got the character's um, present tense experience, it would be a complete mess. We wouldn't know what to pay attention to. Um, It would be a little bit like James Joyce's Ulysses, in fact. Yeah, or even (laughs) worse. Yeah, because that the stream of consciousness pretends to uh, be right in the character's mind, right in the moment, but even it itself is controlled by a narrative entity because otherwise it would be completely unreadable. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, the narrator is always making choices. And you're right. So often I think writers forget that um, we have these choices at our disposal. And even, you know, like classics like The Great Gatsby, people forget that that actually opens not during that summer, but it opens when Nick Carraway has 
left the Northeast, he's back in the Midwest, and he's looking back, reflecting, thinking about that time that still plagues him. Absolutely. And so one, so in the prologue, what we have is, when I most craved clarity, she had given me an enigma. So that is the confusion of the character at the time. And then we get the narrative distance, we get the narrator kind of stepping in. And the narrator tells us, I didn't understand that she was trying to give me the answers that I thought. So that is the older persona um, having more distance from the uh, present action and more understanding of the present action. Um, I uh, trying to give me the answers I saw it. She just didn't know how her attempt was circuitous and clumsy. Um, instead of being blunt, she was being coy. And then even in the years to come, I would often think of the woman in the river. Um, eventually, as I learned the truth about my mother's choices, so even pushing that to, to the future um, and understanding that that you can do that. But it is it can be tricky because it can take us out of that character's present moment if you do it too often, right? Because sometimes we don't want the writer or the narrators to step in front of the stage per se and say, this is what you're going to see. This is how you should interpret it. We just want to see the play on the stage. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think the real joy of reading is that transportative magic carpet ride feeling where you're completely immersed in a set of events. And to have the narrator interject themselves too often and say, folks, here's what's coming, or be sure to pay attention to the following, or, you know, my first time here, I missed this. That can be intrusive and it can feel like a plot spoiler. And I think it kind of breaks the pact between narrator and reader, which as I said before, is this feeling of like, we're in this together. And part of my job as narrator is to disappear a bit so that you can experience this on your own, right? Like I'm a tour guide, but part of my job, if I'm doing it well, is for you to experience this place directly and firsthand. And not stand for so, the scenery. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so, and I think, you know, to go back to your question of, why do we have prologues? Um, I think part of it is, you know, you write the first draft for you because you're trying to make sense of events. You're trying to figure out this story. And later you start as you revise. Part of how I think of revision is through as an act of hospitality. Mm -hmm. And so I think in thinking about the reader and their needs and how you want to set them up, that's something that I think paves the way for something like a prologue. Right, exactly. And so, and these are concerns to think about not only in memoir um, or even the essay form, but in novels, if you're working with a reminiscent narrator, um, how often do we hear from that narrative presence? Um, how often do you need to uh, pull in and just allow allow us to have the character's experience firsthand. And for those of you that are trying to figure that out, I would just read as many um, memoirs or uh, novels with reminiscent narrators as much as you can. There's no hard and fast rules for it. You will see um, different authors choose different ways of doing it. And so just trying to find 
a pacing and rhythm that you like and that works for your particular book is usually the best thing. But just also know that you have that, again, that tool in your toolbox to use um, and understanding that and giving yourself the freedom of that can be really helpful and, and really bring the book forward in, in really exciting, necessary ways. Yes. Give us that reading to watch. Absolutely. And I just, I really want to underscore that point because I think it's so important. So often when I'm working with aspiring writers, um, they get this kind of nervousness when they're onto something good, where they think, wait, am I allowed to do this? Like mm -hmm. I have permission right. to do this. And they get worried that, oh no, I haven't seen this done before. What if, you know, this isn't how you're supposed to go about things. And I think so much of being an author is about self-authorizing mm -hmm. and signing your own permission slip. If you hear from anyone that, oh, you shouldn't do things a certain way, you shouldn't write, you know, in a certain manner or open a book in a certain way, the person saying that I think just hasn't probably read nearly enough. Right. Because yes. to be well read, and I say this as someone who has a PhD in literature, is to see every quote unquote rule broken. Yes. And I think that's the beauty of literature is that risk-taking and doing what feels right for your characters and your story, whether it's memoir or fiction, to be faithful and have fidelity to that, as opposed to thinking about what is quote unquote supposed to happen. Yeah. And I think too, if you have a teacher or workshop leader or friend or whatever, read your work and say, well, no, you have to do this because this is the way it's supposed to work. What you're dealing with is someone who is really tired. <laughs> um, they might be tired with their own work. They might be tired with their teaching job. So just be aware of that too, because um, they've reached a stage where their own thinking is uh, closeted and closed in, and they're having trouble themselves thinking outside the box. Okay, my, I'm going to have to let you go, but I think we could go on forever and keep talking about this. I, I, I love talking about, particularly narrative distances is one of my interest and passion. So everyone else, you can find our full passages of summer schedule on our Substack page at 7amnovelist.substack.com. You can subscribe there for updates. You can also find our full range of podcast episodes on that page, including episodes from our past two writing challenges. We did a big one in November. It was 50 days. And we did another one in March that was 31 days. Um, and each episode takes you through um, uh, having an author writer give you certain advice about a certain aspect of, of writing that I think is very helpful for writers at all stages. Uh, you can also find any of those on your favorite podcast platforms. And if you like what we're doing, please follow, rate, and review our podcast so we can reach other listeners. All right, Maya, one last question. What advice would you give to authors about their own first pages? That's a big one. I think... My advice would be, you know, first write the book the way you need to write it for you and whatever will kind of launch the rocket ship into space. And then once you have your finished draft, know that you can change where you've put the front door in terms of how to set the reader up. And again, I think that's like an act of hospitality and, and kind of a thoughtful way of approaching storytelling is, okay, just because the story needed to start in a certain place for me, that doesn't mean that's where it should start for the reader. Wonderful. Okay. Thank you so much, Maya. Thanks for being with us and everyone else. Get back to your writing desk and have a wonderful writing day. Thank you.
you never 